Welcome to the podcast of the week by the Australian Research Council Centre of Excellence for the History of Emotions, Europe 1100 to 1800. Enjoy hearing how emotions make history. I'm Bastian Phelan, Outreach Officer at the Sydney Node of the ARC Centre of Excellence for the History of Emotions. Today I'm interviewing Rebecca McNamara, former postdoctoral research fellow at the Centre at the University of Sydney and currently Assistant Professor of English at Westmont College, Santa Barbara. Welcome, Rebecca. Can you tell us about the focus of your research while you were at CHE? Sure. Thank you, Bastian. It's so um, nice to speak with you this afternoon. Right, so the project that I was working on at the CHE during my postdoc uh, was officially titled The Emotions Related to the Suicidal Impulse in the Medieval World. Um, but really, I was looking at a slightly narrower version of the medieval world. So in particular, I was thinking about England, usually, uh, and I was looking at the 12th to the 15th centuries. So what we like to think of as the Middle English period, for example. So you were working with Chief Investigator Juanita Rice to research these emotions related to the suicidal impulse. Uh, what led you to frame your project around Middle English legal and literary texts? Well, first of all, the, unfortunately, the legal texts were not in Middle English. <laughs> so um, <laughs> the literary ones were, but um, during this period, most of the legal texts were written in uh, Latin for the most part and Anglo-Norman French. So we had all different sorts of languages to deal with. Um, so when I came on to work with uh, Juanita on the project, we thought a lot about how our backgrounds could contribute to this topic of investigating the suicidal impulse in the Middle Ages. And um, Juanita's background was largely in studying kind of religious and medieval scholastic texts. And my background, uh, my PhD was in literature, um, but during uh, that doctorate, Work, I had worked a lot with administrative and bureaucratic and legal documents of the authors that I was looking at. So really, I had a lot of training and kind of working with legal documents already. So we decided that we'd sort of split up our kind of methodological thinking into her looking at religious texts and culture, and I would kind of look more at um, legal and literary texts and culture. And we ended up actually bringing those three different areas together for an article that we wrote together for Exemplaria. Um, and it was actually a special issue of that journal that Stephanie Trigg from Melbourne edited. And so there we looked at methodologies for how you might research emotions uh, related to the suicidal impulse by looking at um, some particular case study examples of religious texts and legal texts in particular. Why were these legal records significant to your work on suicide? Um, the work with the legal records, it was really interesting. There, um, and there had been some previous scholars, um, a medieval historian from Oxford, Alexander Murray, had actually looked at a, a lot of the legal records before for a study that he did on suicide. Um, but he hadn't thought about emotions very deeply in that study. And uh, I think we wanted to get sort of an understanding for how the legal world or how it was appropriate in the legal sense to, to frame suicide in emotional terms. And unfortunately, there are very few emotional terms um, in the legal record. So we had to kind of find, or I had to kind of find back doors into how we might think about how emotions were being integrated into these um, cases. So one of the main motivating factors for 
exploring legal records further too was that um, a lot of previous scholars who had worked on suicide in the medieval or the early modern period had focused on the idea that the suicidal impulse came from the devil. So that there was sort of a malevolent spiritual force that would motivate a person to, to kill themselves. And you know, not one of the court cases that I read talked about the devil. <laughs> and wow. of course, yeah, and, and of course these were crown cases. They were secular courts. They weren't ecclesiastical courts. But that just demonstrated to me that there were alternative ways of framing suicide than simply chalking it up to a kind of divine force, uh, the devil instigating it. So I was interested in thinking about, okay, well, what other motivations are framed? And the legal records don't really give a ton of information there. They, they typically were very sparse in detail, but I did end up finding that there were in some cases framing language, especially related to sickness. So that would help to kind of flesh out, okay, well, if they're thinking that sickness is an appropriate way to think about a motivation to suicide, what does that mean? What's the role of sickness in medieval culture? What's the role of sickness in relation to criminal activity, et cetera? So it, it, again, it kind of gave an inroad to thinking about how we might pull some juice out of these uh, typically somewhat dry legal records. So can you give us an example of a particular case that you researched? Sure. So, and, you know, disclaimer, we're talking about suicide cases here. So it's, it's a bit sensitive to kind of even talk about it so, so far removed in the future. But um, as I said, a lot of these legal cases, they were really spare. So they would say, if they knew the name of the person, they would say the name. It would say the place where they had killed themselves. It would talk about when it happened. And it would talk about the, the deodand, which is the object that caused the death, such as a knife or a rope or even a body of water if they were drowned. And then it would list their value of their goods and chattels, which was going to be paid as a fine to the king because you were owed a fine to the crown because you had committed a treasonous act by, by killing yourself. So that was that's the typical layout of um, a suicide case. But some of them were uh, a little interesting in that they offered a bit more detail. So I, I did look back and one of the um, more interesting records that I found, it was a man named Thomas and it's from the Northumberland Air Record for 1293. So these were, the air courts were circuit courts that circulated around England. So this was, would be the air court that was visiting Northumberland. The record reports that Thomas was sick of a certain infirmity called the fever and through this anguish he fell into a frenzy and pulled out his knife and struck himself in the chest so that he died the next day. So there's some key words there that are really interesting. Frenzy sometimes would indicate mental illness and technically if a person was mentally ill it, it wasn't supposed to be considered a suicide. It was supposed to con be considered basically an accident and so this one was ruled a suicide. It also had this word uh, anguish or angustia in the Latin and literally that meant kind of narrowness but I think here it's trying to convey basically distress or suffering. So we've got kind of these levels of physical and possibly mental distress and sickness going on and it, it says that he struck himself in the chest and he died the next day and it doesn't even really tie the cause of death to you know, the anguish that's going on or the, the act of stabbing himself that kind of leaves it a bit ambiguous. 
So there's some room there to kind of think about, okay, well, why did they think it was important to include at all that he had this anguish and this frenzy? And what might that tell us about ideas of what might motivate someone to kill themselves? So the idea that there's just an explanation at all that this man was suffering in some way, you know, gives us a bit of information about what they saw as a, a possibility or plausibility for why, why someone might get to that state. Mm. To me, it seems almost quite a modern idea to say if somebody is suffering from a mental illness, perhaps they're not fully responsible for committing a crime. So it's quite interesting to hear that that was already being recorded. Yeah, right. And and that's where it kind of takes me back to that previous question about wanting to sort of unpick the idea of suicide only being associated with the act of the devil, um, because I think there were quite sort of human motivations or situations that were associated with suicide. So it helps us to understand it a bit better. So in these cases, there are quite a few different people involved. There's uh, the self-murdered, the judiciary, and those reporting on or petitioning on behalf of suicide victims. What are some of the different emotions of the people involved in these cases? Again, you know, I think, I don't think I could really speculate on necessarily the emotions that these people in the past felt. But I think what my work allowed me to do was to think about, well, what was plausible or appropriate to think about framing suicide? And so how, how might people think um, that someone might feel? <laughs> Again, kind of getting to the motivations of the, the people who committed these acts is really hard. But one of the more interesting sets of cases that I came across was actually a small set of letters close, which were um, sort of responses to petitions to the king that the king's office would write back to petitioners uh, or to local jurisdictions. During the reign of Edward III, I found a set of petitions that, you know, people had written to him basically saying our father or husband or male relative died by suicide and you confiscated all of the value of their goods and chattels. And we are now bereft. We, and we are sad and we also have no money. <laughs> and so they would basically be asking for a return of the goods and chattels. The record that we actually have in the records is what the King's office wrote back. And often the letters that I found, there was a mention of sickness and it would basically, the king would be saying, because your relative died by suicide because of sickness or because of infirmity, and they might describe the infirmity, we will grant you back these um, goods and chattels or the value of them. And so that was just such an interesting moment because, again, it kind of gave the crown a bit of leeway to basically express compassion in the form of returning something economically to these people, but also to say, well, it gives us a bit of excuse, not that the suicide was not a crime and it, it still was not okay, but because there's this, this detail of infirmity, we can kind of use that to sort of justify returning um, this money to you. And so I wrote an article about that, actually. I called it The Sorrow of Soreness, Infirmity, and Suicide in Medieval England. Um, and that was for Perergon. Yeah, it's just, it just allowed me to kind of dive into those cases and really pick apart the language and think about the culture of infirmity and sickness at that time and how 
it was a very emotional issue to, to think about how someone was affected when they were ill. And so I, I, I theorized that it kind of allowed this sort of moment of justification or perhaps even sympathy and compassion kind of coming almost from the office of the crown, which is sort of interesting to think about. So I guess, again, that's not really what the crown was feeling, but it's sort of the language allows for some thinking about what might have been going on there as far as what was appropriate to say. I'm really curious about the difference between suicide where you can attribute it to sickness and suicide where you can't attribute it to sickness and yeah I wonder if you could just speak a little bit more about about that because I, I find it really interesting the idea that some people would be held accountable for their suicidal actions and some people people would be mm-hmm. sympathetic towards them because of this yeah and I think there you know there's there's so much sort of paratextual background there that we it's so hard to get at through the legal records themselves and you know who knows what some of these cases we're doing because sometimes you actually do see a case that was ruled as a suicide in one court like or in one type of record such as the coroner's rules and then in another type of record say the air court rules it was changed to um, an infortunium or mischance um, or the opposite you know and so you know it's it's difficult to think about okay well what what might have been the motivations for those yeah it does seem that there was as as you pointed out from the answer I gave before, that there was sort of this perception that someone who did not have a grasp of their mental faculties um, shouldn't be held responsible for the actions that they commit, including perhaps killing themselves. Yeah, and I'm, I'm just remembering now as I think back, thinking more about kind of the emotions related to some of these cases, there was a group of some texts, some cases that I found that um, talked about fear as sort of a motivating factor for the person who died by suicide. And some of those cases were interestingly related to potentially criminal activities that the person had committed. So basically framing it as this person was sort of running from the law or trying to escape being accused of a crime. And so they killed themselves. And that is also fascinating because that in some cases, like it could be a cover up for someone who was murdered <laughs> and they're trying to blame it on the person themselves as having killed themselves. But again, it kind of gives us an idea of what might have been plausible or acceptable for thinking about a motivation to suicide. So the idea of fear of being caught, fear of the law um, kind of catching up to you seems to have been another kind of plausible motivator for why someone was understood to have killed themselves. And was there any indication of what emotions were associated with people who killed themselves to get out of debt or to escape going to jail? No, I don't know. And again, even, you know, the details around those cases, you, you can't necessarily take things at face value, <laughs> right? So in, especially with these cases where there's a particular ruling in one record and then the same case has uh, the opposite ruling in another record. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously it could be a mistake, but it, it could be that someone got a hold of whoever was making the decisions <laughs> and um, persuaded the case to be um, shifted another way. I was just thinking about whether there were any differences in social class in terms of how things were ruled. Like if you had more privilege as a member of society, could you potentially 
could your family potentially persuade the courts to say it was an accident rather than it was a crime? I think that probably did happen sometimes, but it's so, that again, that's, that's not something that I looked into in particular, but that does bring up an interesting point about whose deaths were recorded, because I think a lot of times there were probably people who were in the lower echelons of society um, whose deaths were not recorded at all, or they were misrecorded, um, or they were people who maybe didn't have close family networks and it was difficult to tell what had happened. Um, one of the most frequent causes of death by suicide was drowning. And it's very hard to rule a drowning a suicide and not an accident, particularly when you have people who are regularly bathing, you know, in, in rivers and things like that. And so it, it kind of brings up a question of there, there probably were a lot more deaths by suicide that were not recorded appropriately or recorded at all. And really the same thing actually goes for today in many countries, the number of um, deaths by suicide are usually underreported for various reasons. Mm. Makes me think of the, the cemetery of the nameless people in Vienna. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, lots of unmarked graves. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> How does the history of emotions help us to understand death? Great question. So I think death is a crystallizing issue in in so many cultures and so many times most cultures have some sort of uh, ritual practice and you know persistent attitudes and even emotions um, around death you can track how those change because we commemorate death we tend to uh, as humans <laughs> the fact that we have records of deaths makes it um, a very kind of fascinating area to turn to because there's there's typically going to be some material there to work with I think yeah, attitudes towards death shift in um, time and place. That's a way of really actually demonstrating what the history of emotions as uh, a theory claims, which is that emotions have a history. You know, they have a time and a place and a culture. And so by sort of digging into death practices in particular eras and periods and the emotions that might have been associated with those practices, I think we, you can trace almost clearly perhaps than in some other sort of issues, um, how, how those emotions have changed. Um, so I think it helps us to understand that emotions have a history at all. An article that I actually wrote with Una McElvena, who was my fellow postdoc at Sydney during our years at the center, um, we co-edited a special issue of Pereragon on death and dying in the medieval and early modern period. And we wrote um, an introductory article together um, to that volume. And I remember that one of the things that we tried to bring out in that introductory article was the idea that death was seen in medieval and early modern Europe as a learning experience. So particularly if you think about it being framed um, in, a, in a Christian religious sense in England, for example, or Western Europe, it was a time when you could reflect on the afterlife, obviously, and make sure that you were prepared to die. And so you get so many uh, very rich cultural traditions and practices and, you know, people popularly as well as in religious and intellectual circles, people are thinking about how to prepare themselves to die um, and to die well. And you have very, you know, different kind of attitudes and emotions associated that with that at different periods. You might think about death in terms of joy, about what might be coming afterwards, 
but you might also hold death in a sense of sort of fear to make sure that you are doing everything you can to make sure you're prepared at all times. And you should be a bit fearful if you don't feel prepared. <laughs> so yeah, I think thinking about the deaths of others as well as kind of preparing for one's own death could be sort of seen as this learning experience. Why do you think it's important to study the history of emotional responses to suicide? To me, opening up conversations about suicide at all is important in that it begins to break down taboos of silence around death by suicide, which in turn might help people to look out for people who are in distress and also people who might feel suicidal impulses or feel um, anxiety and stress to an extreme might give them a chance to reach out to people. There is really good work going on in Australia, for example, the Are You Okay initiative. They've got Are You Okay Day in September, and I think they're doing really good work to just open up a conversation about how easy it can be to reach out to someone who you notice is in distress and say, are you okay? And just open up a window for them to let you know how they're feeling. And I think that organization and others are doing a good job of also sort of just training people to be equipped to listen. And, uh, and again, also just reach out to people that they notice might be in distress. And so not that my work looking at the medieval past is doing that, but again, I think any conversation that allows suicide to be something that is talked about in a constructive way um, so that we can think better about how to form supportive communities and um, how to provide resources for people who might be in distress, how to provide crisis training for allies and other people. Any work that, that brings to light that kind of um, initiative, I think, is, is a positive thing. You know, understanding about our history as people who've always dealt with perhaps the impulse to suicide is just one more way to add to the narrative of how we can manage that traumatic issue, um, which is still a detrimental force in many cultures. I feel in a way kind of really honored to work on something like this, even though it's, it's a bit shocking <laughs> when I describe what I do to people. You know, it's, it's not something that a lot of historians work on um, or, or people who work in the past. But again, I think there is sort of this con continuity in, in the issue of suicide from the past to today um, that does tend to sort of open up ways to think about how it can be relevant for developing better answers to um, dealing with suicide. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, you know, the there are deep and uh, intense emotions related to suicide still in society today a lot of you know shame anger misinformation and it is still very taboo but you know it's i find it's really encouraging to see when suicide is mentioned in the media these days for example there's always support services yeah. um, mentioned within the article so I definitely think that education around suicide prevention is getting better. And I, I also think that uh, being able to understand the history of emotions relating to suicide uh, will definitely help inform society to better deal with suicide and suicidal impulses today.
Yeah, I hope so. I think that's important. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Rebecca. It's been very fascinating talking to you about this topic and uh, all the best for your future research. Thank you, Bastian. You too. If you enjoyed this podcast by the ARC Centre for the History of Emotions, please go to our website, www.historyofemotions.org.au.